RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. As I said right at the beginning, insurance provides a gateway, a wonderful gateway into all aspects of human society, human life. So if you're if you're going to study insurance, you're not just studying insurance as a business, but you're studying insurance and its relationship to other aspects of the economy and society. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Professor Robin Pearson and we're going to discuss how insurance influenced the Industrial Revolution. Robin is Professor of Economic History at the University of Hull, and although he writes widely on economic history, he has a particular interest in insurance and has been described as the foremost historian of the British insurance industry. The most recent of his many publications is a book entitled Delusions of Competence, The Near Death of Lloyds of London, 1970-2002, available from all good online retailers. But back in 2004, he wrote another book for which he won the Wadsworth Prize for Business History. That book was called Insuring the Industrial Revolution, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Peter, for inviting me. It's, uh, it's always fun to talk about insurance. <laughs> it, it, it is indeed. But uh, let, let's begin at the beginning. So what was it that drew you personally into history and then into economic history and finally into insurance history? My interest in history goes back to primary school, building Mott and Bailey castles and with paper mache. <laughs> so I've always been interested in history and always wanted to study it. And I studied it at university in Edinburgh. I did my PhD. It was really with my PhD at Leeds that um, my interest shifted towards economic history. So I think by the time I left Leeds, I was kind of more or less identifying as a economic historian. My first salary job was working for a Cambridge scholar called Clive Trebilcock, who was a very well-known industrial and business historian who'd been commissioned to write the history of the Phoenix Assurance Company, which was one of the oldest companies still to survive in the early 1980s in Britain. It was 200 years old in 1982. And he'd been commissioned to write their corporate history. And I was hired as one of a series of research assistants that he'd employed and that was really, it was the experience of working in the this 200-year-old archive in the city of London that got me interested in insurance and opened my eyes to the, the possibilities of insurance illustrating or shedding light on uh, all kinds of aspects of social and, and economic history. Um, for example, if you research life insurance, then you learn about not just about demographic trends and mortality rates and life expectancy, but you also learn about medicine. You have to take into account attitudes towards suicide, the professionalization of doctors, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this kind of insurance provides a kind of channel in, into looking at all kinds of aspects of human society and human human economies over, over time. Um, and and the, the full title of your, your book from 2004 is Insuring the Industrial Revolution, Fire Insurance in Great Britain, 1700 to 1850. And uh, today in this conversation, that's what we're going to be focusing on. So fire insurance and how it developed during the, the Industrial Revolution. So now, obviously, I suspect that everyone listening to uh, this podcast will know in rough terms what, what the Industrial Revolution was. But please, could you summarise it in, in your own words and kind of perhaps in that context, 
why did you choose the 1700 and 1850 as the end dates for your book? Well, the old story of the Industrial Revolution, the story that most scholars told before the 1980s, was that it was a, a period of British history which saw a rapid transition from an economy that was largely agricultural-based, where 70-80% of the workforce worked in the fields, to an economy that was largely industrial and manufacturing-based, where half of GDP was accounted for by manufacturing output. And that older story was accompanied by metaphors like takeoff, as one of the, an airplane going down a runway, picking up speed, and then the industrial revolution was the takeoff phase as the as the aircraft gained altitude and and got to cruising height, and at cruising height it became a mature economy. Very attractive metaphors that were easily swallowed. But in the 1980s was a revolution in economic history, starting in the United States and and then quickly followed up in the UK and Europe and the rest of Europe, where economic and particularly econometric uh, quantitative methods were applied to measuring growth really for the first time in a serious kind of statistical way. And the results of those studies of the 1980s were quite revisionist, I would say, if not revolutionary. They they showed that British economic growth was actually extraordinarily, by modern standards, extraordinarily slow uh, oh, right. during, okay. during the main period of the industrial. The main period of the industrial revolution is always been identified as roughly mid-18th century, so 1760 to 1850 or 1830, depending on which textbook you read. But during that period, growth was always assumed to be very rapid. And in fact, it turned out to be not much more than around 2% a year, which by modern standards, you know, if you think of India today growing at 6.9% a year, according to the latest World Bank estimates, Britain was growing pretty slowly. So the, the new story really is, is of Britain undergoing a very long, slow transition out of agriculture towards industry. But within that transition, there are small pockets of the economy where there is actually quite very rapid change. The metalworking industries, iron and steel, the uh, coal mining, and particularly the textile industry were you know, examples of these much more rapidly growing industries where there are there's lots of technological innovation and uh, lots of new machinery displacing manual labor and the result was rapid productivity growth falling prices of products and with cheaper products britain was able to then export those products be highly competitive in exporting the products around the world and is that why you chose an extended period of time to look at rather than as you say the classic period of 1760 through to 1830 that's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is that fire insurance is not was not generated by the Industrial Revolution. Fire insurance had a long prehistory, if you like. 100, there was 100 years of fire insurance before you get to the classic era of the Industrial Revolution. So that earlier prehistory really needed to be explained. And, and what provoked you to, to write the book? And why did you focus on fire insurance? Because Obviously, we had marine insurance, a well-developed marine insurance industry as well. But you don't look at that in the book. So why is it that you focus on fire rather than marine? Well, the, the answer to that is pretty simple, really. To write the book, I was drawing on my experience of working in the Phoenix Archives 10 years earlier. And Phoenix had been an exclusively fire insurance company. They did no marine insurance at all. So I had, as a scholar, I had no experience, virtually zero experience of marine insurance. I've, I've learned since then a lot more about marine insurance. But uh, my first uh, expertise, line of it, area of expertise was fire insurance. I didn't go back before 1700, largely because I was nervous about my uh, lack of expertise of late 17th century history. So I thought, uh, and the, the first <laughs> of, of, the, of the six 
London fire insurance offices that dominated fire insurance for, for the first 60 or 70 years of its history in England, the earliest one was founded in 1696 as the hand in hand. So 1700 is a, I should have I suppose my starting date should have been 1696 rather than 1700, but it's... It, it, make, it makes it look more deliberate then, doesn't it? If you, uh... <laughs> yeah. now, now, the question that by the end of this episode I want answered, uh, Robin, is to what extent was Britain's Industrial Revolution shaped by the existence of fire insurance? So that's the question we've got in mind, and we'll get to an answer by the end. But let's start at the beginning. And could you introduce us to the world of fire in, in 1700. Um, that, uh, the Great Fire of London had happened in 1666, so a, a mere 34 years before 1700. So so how long, that you've already mentioned the hand-in-hand hand was 1696. What, was that the very beginning of fire insurance? Right, well, the hand-in-hand hand was not the first fire insurance office. Promoters began to project possible new fire insurance ventures as early as the late 1660s. So, so after six, in 1666, the Great Fire burnt down 13,000 houses in London. And there was a plan to rebuild, replace those houses with new houses, about 9,000 new houses. It took quite a while for London to be rebuilt. In fact, it took a, a good decade for the city to be rebuilt. And during that decade of the 1670s and then the subsequent decade of the 1680s, there's a number of competing projects or ventures that are promoted in the City of London for fire insurance. Some of them are private ventures like Nicholas Barbon's fire insurance office that later became known as the, the First Phoenix. Some of them were mutual ventures like the Friendly Society of 1683. Others were um, municipal ventures where uh, a promoter went to the City of London and tried to sell them his project for a municipally owned uh, insurance corporation to be run by the City of London. So there are various competing ventures. Now, none of these early schemes from 1670 through to 17, uh, through to 1696, none of these early schemes survived for very long into the 18th century. The first fire office that did survive was six, it was founded in 1696 as a mutual society by a group of builders in the city of London. But they only insured buildings. They didn't insure the contents of those property. And then they, there was a spin-off company 10 years later called The Union, which uh, spin-off company of the hand in hand, which focused purely on insuring contents. So by the early 18th century, you're beginning to get uh, companies that are established on a relatively sound financial basis Throughout the 18th until the 17 until 1782, in fact, six companies dominated London fire insurance. Three mutuals, two of which I've mentioned already: the Hand in Hand and the Union. Then another company called the Westminster, and then and there were three joint stock companies: the Sun, which was founded in 1708, relaunched in 1710, became the most important fire insurance company in England in for most of the 18th century and was also the first fire insurance company to develop an extensive network of agencies outside London as well. The three mutuals largely focused their, their business on London and the, and the surrounding home counties, but the joint stock companies that came along, the Sun, and then followed by two others in 1720, the Royal Exchange and the, and the London Insurance Company, those three joint stock companies made big efforts to extend their business uh, nationwide. And what was the general attitude towards fire? Because obviously nowadays, fires are rare, and we obviously take lots of precautions to avoid fire. But there's a fascinating bit in, in, in your book about the fact that 
back then, fire was just, you know, it was God's will. It was, you know, it, there was a, you know, a laissez-faire attitude towards fire. It happened, meh, kind of move on. So, so fatalistic or providential. Yeah, exactly. Fatalistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another story that is a bit misleading about fire insurance that's often used to be told is that insurance was the kind of the classical embodiment of enlightenment and rationalist thought. Insurance was the industry that measured risk, priced it, and and bundled it up and sold it as a commodity, and was the, the one of the driving forces of increasing a popular awareness of risk. And, and the need to prevent risk. In fact, those kind of fatalist and providentialist attitudes that you're talking about, it's God's will, can't do nothing about fire, and they survived remarkably long into the throughout the 18th century and, and into the 19th century, along with superstitions, belief in witchcraft and magic. You know, it, it's, it's too easy to think of late 18th century Britain as being a, a world, you know, full of rationalist, uh, rational economic thinkers. So the story that fire insurance simply educated the British public to take, you know, to more rationalist, enlightened approaches to risk prevention is is um, is a bit of a stretch. I think it's. Uh... <laughs> of course, this is a period where there was. Yeah, we we forget now with electricity and just how dependent people were on candles and you know and coal fires and in in your book that there seems to be an endless supply of people boiling things uh, and or 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 vats of lard or or things like that and or or boiling linseed oil and and you say all of these activities which are we would now regard as extraordinarily dangerous but we've just done all the time in these buildings which may well have been built of wood um, warehouses where uh, you know everything inside the warehouse was flammable, and the warehouse itself was was made of wood. Uh, it, the whole place was it was a disaster area. <laughs> Absolutely, and especially as in especially in places like London, uh, there's a lot of manufacturing industry in London. People think of London as a financial centre and a residential, you know, high end residential property, but uh, there's a lot of manufacturing industry in London. A lot of the manufacturing industry in London was done in the basement or the back rooms of people's houses. So it was a uh, it was quite common for people to combine their their residential dwellings with their occupations, whether it's lard boiler or you know, um, so it was quite common for residential property to have these kind of hazards uh, as well. There wasn't such a clear division between your occupational life and your residential, your, your you know, domestic mm. life as as there is today. Now, we've already touched upon sort of the, the developments of the first kind of 50, 60, 70 years of, of the, the 1700s. And you're saying that there are kind of these five, um, no, six. six, six, sorry, six main um, kind of insurers, fire insurers who sort of dominated that period. But kind of talk us through the, the, the second half of our 150-year period. So the period from around the 1780 mark through to 1850. How, how did things change in, in that period? Well, um, the driving force behind the growth of fire insurance from 1700 up to the 1780s had been the growth of the population and the growth of residential property. 95% of property that was insured was residential property. So that was clearly the driving force behind the development of fire insurance. The reason 1782 is a break in the development of fire insurance is because of taxation. Pitt's government, uh, the, the American War of Independence had been extraordinarily expensive for the British government, and they needed to raise taxes to pay for the interest on that debt. 
and they introduced for the first time a percentage tax on sums insured against fire insurance. Basically, the the the, the ministers and their their civil servants in Whitehall looked at fire insurance and said, "Hey, this is a this is a big this has become a big business, and and all we're doing, all we've done for the last hundred years is to tax policies." Paper policies. There was a flat rate of five shillings on an insurance policy. You bought an insurance policy, you had to pay everybody, regardless of how much you insured, had to pay a flat rate. Uh, it dawned on Pitt's government that if they charged a percentage rate on the sums insured against fire, they could raise a lot of money. And they introduced it in the end a, a one and sixpence percentage tax on that's that's to say they taxed insurance for every hundred pounds insured they levied a tax of one shilling and sixpence. It's quite small. However, in terms of um, the burden on policyholders, the tax was actually quite large because if you think that the average cost of insuring a, a, an ordinary residential house in 1782 was about two shillings, between two and three shillings for every £100 insured, a tax of one shilling and sixpence raised the cost of that insurance by 50% or more. And the effect on the growth of insurance, as one might imagine, was quite dramatic. If you look at a graph, my, the graph in my book of the growth rates of fire insurance, um, the growth is going upwards quite rapidly through the 1760s, 1770s with the building boom. And then it just collapses in 1782. It collapses by about 20, 20% or more. And the period of high taxation from 1782 to 1815 was a, a period of of slower growth. I wouldn't say stagnation, but much slower growth. And then after 1815 uh, and the wars are over, Britain's England's victorious against France. The economy picks up again. And there's a huge increase in, in British exports that drives an increase in capital investment in, in 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 particularly in the textile industry, the cotton industry. There's a whole bunch of new cotton cotton mills and machinery like power looms are in are invested in in the 1820s and 30s. So there's a lot more insurable property becomes available through the period in the, the decades after 1815. And that then allows fire insurance to, or stimulates a, an acceleration, a pickup of growth, a recovery, if you like, of, of the industry after 1815. And you see a lot more fire, new fire insurance companies being founded to compete with the older London companies coming into the market and driving down prices, making fire insurance cheaper. And uh, and that's really the story from 1815 to 1850. So really it's it's kind of a three-phase story. The period of growth driven by population and residential property before 1782, the slowing down of growth between 1782 and 1815 due to the, the, the sudden tax burden. Um, and then after 1815, uh, a resurgence of of more rapid growth with more companies entering the market, greater competition, more sophisticated risk classification and underwriting, and a whole bunch of other things that I could talk about. Okay, and we're, for this episode, we're obviously talking about the Industrial Revolution. So we're thinking about mills and mines and transport, canals, um, and in due course, railways. But you said earlier on that the vast majority of fire insurance was was residential rather than industrial. What was it that provoked that? And why was it that insurers didn't get more involved in the industrial side of things? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, there wasn't a lot of big industrial property to insure before the 1780s, before the, the emergence of large cotton mills and large woolen mills, large textile mills. Secondly, there was a lot of property that was uninsurable. A large chunk of the industrial activity associated with the Industrial Revolution was not touched by fire insurance companies for obvious reasons. They didn't like insuring forges or furnaces or coal mines or salt quarries or brickworks. They didn't insure metal workshops in Sheffield and Birmingham, for example, all because of the sources of heat. But if you look at the textile industry, as mills began to proliferate, from the 1780s onwards, they became a real major focus of attention for the English fire insurance offices. Uh, And they struggled to know how to price the risk associated with steam engines and and carding machines and power looms and so on and so forth. And they kept putting up the price, mills kept burning down, and they began to realise that if they cooperated with each other and and collated the information or the information that they had on on mill risks, then they could come to a better risk classification. And that's exactly what they did. From the 1780s through to the 1800s, they, there were regular meetings of the big three London fire, joint stock fire insurance offices that, that, had out, that had agents in the north of England, where the industrial property was. And they were sending inspectors up to places like Manchester and Leeds to actually physically visit, not just relying on their local agents, but actually visiting. So. By, uh, so from a, a situation in, in, in insuring residential property in the for most of the 18th century, where most fire insurance companies operated with just three three or four classes of risk, you know, brick buildings, buildings that are a mixture of brick and timber, and timber-only buildings, and then what they called special hazards, which was like you know, oil vats and things like that, or sugar refineries. They moved from a situation of, of Building the developing the fire insurance industry on on a very simple four class four category classification to uh, the book of rates that developed by the London fire offices by the 18, 1820s had over a hundred classes of risk, including multiple categories of types of different types of mills, silk mills, flax mills, woolen mills, cotton mills. So through cooperation through bitter experience and a very steep learning curve with mills burning down, and also through a lot of cross-subsidization. This is one of the arguments I make in my book, that the profits insurance companies made on the safer residential fire insurances, a lot of that was cross-subsidizing the losses they were making on mill property until they got to a point by the 1820s and 1830s where their underwriting of mill property was much more sophisticated, their knowledge of the risks involved with new types of machinery was was much greater. We, we spoke earlier on about the uh, the fact that lots of people approached fire in a fatalistic manner. To what extent was that still the case by 1850? And if society had become less fatalistic by then, to what extent was that due to the fire insurers and, and the existence of fire insurance? I think you can distinguish between the ordinary worker and labourer who probably still had, in some parts of the country, especially rural parts of the country, still uh, retained fatalistic attitudes, providential attitudes towards fire and, and, and other types of risk, floods, other disasters. You can distinguish between those groups in society and, for example, the business communities that insured their mill property or their, their sugar refineries or their warehouses in Liverpool. By 1800, these 
business communities had a quite a sophisticated understanding of the risks that they faced in building mills. And to the extent that uh, the very largest mill owners, such as I'm thinking of um, um, Phillips and Lee's Salford Mill, uh, Cotton Mill in Salford, which is seven stories high and one of the biggest industrial properties at the time, they, inve- they invested their own money in uh, fireproofing techniques. Basically, it, it consisted of bolting metal plates, metal sheets on the inside of what the walls of mills, different mill, mill f- floors of mills. Um, so should a fire break out, should some cotton dust catch fire uh, or woolen dust, um, then the fire wouldn't penetrate. The idea was it wouldn't penetrate the metal to the to the brick and timber walls. So there was there was investment by business community in fire prevention and fire mitigation, fire risk mitigation. But I don't think that, uh, to go back to your question, I don't think that keen awareness and anxiety almost of the, the danger of fire, I don't think that penetrated quite through to, you know, uh, lower lower income groups in society. Of course, of course, lower income groups had less property to lose. So, yeah. And yeah. often, you know, into Dickensian days lived hand by mouth. So, um, you know, you can you can perfectly understand more fatalistic attitudes towards risk among these groups. But 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 the the, the insurers um, weren't fatalistic um, about things, and and as I understand it, that they they took a proactive approach, um, both uh, directly through creation of fire services, but also indirectly through petitioning for better building standards and making sure that properties were built out of brick rather than wood and things like that. So so to, to what extent did did insurers genuinely influence proactively kind of the, the development of fire prevention and fire protection during that period? Yeah, yeah, they were they were pretty proactive. Obviously, um promoting fire prevention costs money and insurers were keen, always keenly aware of the bottom line, but they did um invest quite heavily in their own fire brigades. So there was the investment in firefighting. There was also a lot of attention on water supplies. In London, for example, the and, and other towns for that matter as well, fire insurance companies were always on at the municipal authorities to keep the plugs unblocked. And the, the plugs were literally plugs in the road that could be opened, plugs in water pipes under the road that could be opened in the event of fire so that fire engines could get a water supply to fight fight fire. So there was investment in firefighting equipment and water supplies. There were petitions to Parliament for building regulations and uh, the famous London Building Code of 1776, which stipulated a more rigorous code for builders in London, so that uh, partly with a view to reducing the risk of fire. The other area I can think of that is an example of proactivity by fire insurance companies is in the realm of arson. For example, in, in the reign of Queen Anne in the early 18th century, arson was a big concern. Parliament passed the, an arson act, which uh, I think the penalty was death, capital punishment, you know, the death penalty for arson, uh, convicted arsonists. So there were repeated campaigns against arsonists. There was the promotion of fire prevention and there was active firefighting by the, uh, I mean, the London Fire Brigade was originally the combined efforts of the London insurance companies pulling their resources together to found a London fire engine establishment in the early 1830s. And out of that came the municipal London Fire Brigade that we have today. So the insurance companies were, yeah, they were 
quite proactive, I would say. Uh, and we should say that these these fire insurers had remarkable longevity as well. In, in a world where most companies don't last very long at all, a lot of these early insurers are still with us, aren't they? So you've mentioned the Sun as the biggest fire insurer in the 18th century. That's now Royal and Sun Lions RSA Group, and you know the Royal Exchange became Guardian Royal Exchange, and a, a lot of these companies are still with us, aren't they? Yeah, there was a big merger wave in the late 19th century where some of the older companies got swallowed up. And then again in the 1960s and the 1980s and the 2000s, there, there were, you know, repeated mergers and acquisitions and, and uh, waves, which uh, were some of the older names, uh, names of older companies disappeared. But the, even before these merger waves, the longevity, you're absolutely right, the longevity is re- remarkable. There are very few, very few fire insurance companies go bust mm. uh, in the whole period that I studied. Uh, as I said earlier, my first salary job for the Phoenix Insurance Company was to do the research for uh, its uh, commissioned corporate history in 1982. And that was uh, a 200th anniversary mm. of the company. It was a bit ironic that within two years, the company got taken over by <laughs> it's one of its oldest rivals, the Sun. So Phoenix got swallowed up by the Sun. But yeah, the 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 big insurance groups today are really all amalgams of much older uh, insurance companies. Right at the outset, I said we wanted to answer a question in this podcast, and uh, I wanted us to be able to answer the question, to what extent was Britain's industrial revolution shaped by the existence of fire insurance? So overall, Robin, how would you analyse the impact and, and influence of fire insurance as opposed to marine or, or life insurance on uh, economic and social change during Industrial Revolution Britain? It sounds an easy question to answer, but it's not. It's a very difficult question to answer because causality is always something very difficult to put your put your finger on, cause and effect. What I can say is that I don't I haven't come across a single mill owner who didn't build a mill because he couldn't get fire insurance. So if you were to put me on the spot, I would suggest that the Industrial Revolution would have taken place anyway, or at least would have got up and running in terms of the expansion of industrial property and the shift of capital, labour and land resources from farming into, into industry. That trend, that process would have would have happened anyway without insurance. That, that doesn't mean to say that insurance didn't have an impact or shape, to use your term, shape the industrial revolution. I think it did. And to support that conclusion, uh, you can point to the fact that virtually every mill Every textile mill in Britain had insurance by the the early 19th century. If you read the letters of mill owners and manufacturers, there was a widespread expectation that fire insurance was just something you buy when you uh, launch an industrial venture, whether it's textile manufacturing or sugar refining or brewing. More particularly, I think fire insurance helped shape the industrial revolution by pushing mill owners to, to a greater awareness of risk, pushing them towards making their workplaces safer, their buildings safer, reducing the risk of fire. And by reducing risk, then you, by extension, you could argue that that increased incentives to invest. It raised levels of trust and confidence in manufacturing industry and therefore encouraged investment in the industry. But as I say, cause and effect is very difficult. You can't, it's difficult to put your finger on, you know, on a single letter or statement by an industrialist in this period and say, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm extending my investment in my, my industrial venture business because 
I've got insurance. That's that's very that kind of statement is very difficult to find. And uh, for, for any listeners out there who who want to know more about it, then I heartily recommend uh, Robin's book, Insuring the Industrial Revolution: Fire Insurance in Great Britain from 1700 to 1850. But but finally, Robin, to conclude, what bit of advice would you give uh, to a young academic historian kind of who is thinking about researching insurance? Two things. First of all, as I said right at the beginning, insurance provides a gateway, a wonderful gateway into all aspects of human society, human life, whether it's living with climate change or or, or studying the slave trade or, or suicide, life expectancy, medicine, and so on and so forth. So insurance is a brilliant gateway into it. So if you're if you're going to study insurance, you're not just studying insurance as a business, but you're studying insurance and its relationship to other aspects of the economy and society. The second point I would make is that insurance has a wonderful pool of untouched research material. Insurance, by by its nature, generated a lot of paperwork, a lot of data, a lot of correspondence, a lot of uh, a lot of committee meetings. There's a lot of primary sources, archival sources that uh, have been really untouched, not just for fire insurance, but for marine and life insurance as well. So there's a lot of history to write, a lot of things to research, a lot of uncovered stories still to still to find and to tell. Thank you, Robin. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.